If you would, turn in the Bible to Revelation chapter 7. Revelation chapter 7, that's where we were last Sunday, and that's where we will be today. Heaven is a real place. We know that because God is a real God. And God has told us that he is in heaven and he is preparing heaven for us and that when we die, we can be with him forever in heaven. So, we understand that heaven is a place that we go if we are forgiven of our sins and in a right relationship with God. Heaven also has citizens, people that belong to heaven. We read earlier from Philippians chapter 3 where it says our citizenship is in heaven. We are members there. That is our place, our people, our God citizens of heaven. The book of Revelation is one single revelation filled with visions of the world and what's happening in the world and the coming end of the world and the ultimate hope of heaven. We're seeing all of this in the book of Revelation. And in chapter 7, we have one of these great chapters, like chapter 5 of Revelation, It is an outstanding chapter. While the whole book is really good, chapters 5 and 7 are really, really good. They are loaded, and they are specifically about the glory of our salvation being known and experienced in heaven. John sees heaven in chapter 7. Now, last week I pointed out that at first he heard heaven, and then he turned, and then he looked at heaven, and that was a big point for you to realize last week. He heard at the beginning, and then he turned, and he sees. And what he sees in heaven, according to chapter 7, verse 9, is a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. He sees that happening in heaven. A little bit later in chapter 7, though, we get this interesting, fascinating, kind of curious dialogue about, well, who exactly are those people? The people in heaven, those who are crying out, those from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, the 144,000, like, who are those people? And that is a great question. So what I want to do today is I want us to identify the citizens of heaven, 
Not so much who are they, they are the redeemed, but rather identify them in what are they like. If we want to be in heaven, if we are trusting in Christ for our salvation, for our salvation, and so we are believing that our sins are forgiven and that we are those citizens in heaven, citizens of heaven right now, that we are in the kingdom of God. If God is our Father and we believe that, then it would be good for us to say, well, here's what heaven's like, here's what the people of heaven are like, and here are the characteristics of those, and let's do some reflection to see if that's what we're like. Is that who we are? identifying the citizens of heaven. Read with me at chapter 7, beginning in verse 13. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these, clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation." They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat, for the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is one of those passages that reminds us of so many of God's truths. That that we just read has already been said in the Bible. You've heard it before. You've read it before. We've taught it before. Characteristics of believers, characteristics of the truth, characteristics of the gospel message that we proclaim. But what makes this so good is that we are now seeing these truths embodied by people, citizens, not only of heaven, which is how we often teach it, but literally in heaven. He is seeing this in heaven among the people. This is a foundational passage because it reminds us and it strengthens us in all that we believe and all that we teach. But it is certainly a very encouraging passage because it assures us that that which we are to be about now, that that we struggle with now, that that we labor to embrace and hold tight to now is the same truth, God's truth, the saving truth, the eternal truth of heaven. And what a blessing that is. The passage begins with this question. A question that one of the elders, one of the 24 elders says to John. He says, who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? And I don't really know where this question comes from. We don't know his motivation in asking this question. But there certainly is a lot to speculate, right? 
Did he not know? That's why you're supposed to ask questions, right? When you get done with a training or a class or a lesson, the teacher might say, does anybody have a question? Okay, I don't want anybody confused. Is there anything, anything you need to know? Did I leave anything out? Anything you need to know? Do you have a question? And if you don't know something, you're supposed to ask. But we know that's not the case here because John's the one that doesn't know. He can't answer that question. And so when he asks John, John answers back and says, you know, not me. So the guy that asked the question is the guy that answers the question, which that becomes, what, rhetorical? Is that one of those tactics you use when you're trying to emphasize something? You ask a question that you already know the answer to? Or maybe... This was obvious what the answer was, but he asked the question for John and asked the question for our sake so that we would be very much so aware of the answer. Okay, who is that again in heaven and how did they get there and why are they there and tell me a little bit more about that. And maybe there's a little bit of Making the point that they didn't deserve to be there. Maybe there's a little bit of sense in heaven of, I can't believe believe I'm here. I really can't believe he's here. I can't believe we're here. I can't get over this place. Maybe there was this epiphany, if you will, of who are these people again? That certainly will be an element of heaven. That that place is too good for us. You shouldn't have an issue with me saying that because we do get it. We, do, we are allowed to be there. We are welcomed there. We are secure there, but only outside of our own merit. We are only there. We will only be there. They are only there. And secured of being there, not because anything we have done, not by work so that no one can boast, but by the work of Christ the life that he gave, the sacrifice for our sins. And so in asking this question, who are these people? Who are these clothed in white robes? Where did they come from? They haven't always been here in heaven. John doesn't know, and so he says, sir, you know. And he answers back a loaded answer. The first thing I want to point out today of uh, identifying the citizens of heaven is, number one, their perseverance in Christ. If the kids are using a listening page, that's number one, perseverance in Christ. Verse 14 says, Sir, you know, and he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great 
tribulation. In other words, they didn't necessarily coast into heaven. It wasn't necessarily a Sunday stroll. They had to make it. They had to get through. They had to finish the race, to use some biblical language. They had to fight the good fight. They had to persevere until the end. They had to come out of the great tribulation. They had to go through the great tribulation. Notice that in persevering in Christ, coming out of the great tribulation, we are immediately told that they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. The Bible does not allow us, beginning to end, middle, or anywhere else, to think that our ability to persevere is found in our own strength. For as much as the Bible does teach and emphasize strength and keeping and pressing on and keep going and don't quit and never give up, persevere, finish, as much as the Bible continues to say that, it also always follows up by saying that it is God working in you, it is the Holy Spirit's power in you, it is God keeping you. And so here we see these people are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. And if we were to stop there, and if we were to be an unfaithful, unhealthy Bible teacher, we would take that sentence just by itself, and we would come over here and have a false teaching that says, you just got to press on and be tough enough and not get beat up and not let this world beat you down and preach like that so that you think the strength is in you and it will only leave you flattened and discouraged. But to piggyback on that great statement, they came through the great tribulation. He immediately talks about washing yourselves in the blood of the Lamb. What's that got to do with any type of persevering, you might ask? Because I'll tell you this, I've seen it too many times in my life. From the way I was raised, to the coaches that I had, to the teachers that I had, to the people that I've lived amongst. That life is hard and there's trial and adversity and you better learn how to get up when you fall down. You better learn how to be able to live through somebody making fun of you or hurting your feelings. You better be able to learn through it. And so many times religion seems to be out of the conversation when it comes to toughness to be able to stick with it. And the Bible will not allow it to be that way. The Bible says you're going to have to go through the great tribulation. But the Bible says that the key to it is holding on to the Savior Christ. Even more specifically, you need to wash yourself in the blood of the Lamb. There is perseverance in Christ. These people in heaven around the throne crying out, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne. The people saying that are the ones who have persevered in Christ. Their identity is that they have now a white robe on, which is representation of their forgiveness. Their filthy, dirty sins have been washed away. They did not wash them themselves. They didn't find good soap or a good bath. They didn't find a ritual that would make them clean. They trusted by faith alone in the shed blood of Christ, which happened on the cross when Jesus died as the way for them to be forgiven, made new, purified. Tom Schreiner writes, those in white robes have emerged from life on earth. That's a good word, isn't it? 
And then he quotes from the song Amazing Grace when he says, they have emerged from life on earth from many dangers, toils, and snares. You remember that line? And now they are in God's presence forever in the new creation since their robes are white. John tells us their robes were whitened because they have, how their robes were whitened, they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Those that persevere in Christ do not persevere because of their strength. They persevere because of Christ's salvation. May we never confuse that. Schreiner goes on to write, the promise of preservation for believers does not mean that they will be absent from the earth when this great trial arrives. It doesn't mean that. It means that they will not face the judgment after the trial. That they will be spared from God's wrath just as Israel was exempted from the plagues that devastated Egypt. We will go through the tribulation, but we will escape the judgment of God because we have been forgiven of our sins. And those that are in heaven worshiping around the throne are identified here as those who have come through the great tribulation. They have persevered in Christ. What a beautiful thought. Washed in the blood. Perseverance is a nice topic in Christianity. It is the one that says, keep going. Press on, hold on tight, hold fast, believe, don't give up, don't quit, don't bow down, don't shrink back, don't be ashamed, keep trusting in Christ. This is a part of the Bible's teaching. But we must always hold that Bible teaching with the truth that God is the one that keeps us. The Bible says this many times, that God is a keeping God. Philippians 1.6 says that I am confident of this great thing, that the God who began a good work in us will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. In other words, at that day, the great day, the judgment day, the wrath of God returning, at that day, there should be confident that you will be then what God has prepared you to be. What God started in you, he will finish in you by the time that day comes. When you go through the great tribulation, you will persevere in Christ because it is God causing you to persevere. In other words, he is keeping you. Or you may remember the introduction to that small book of Jude, the book right before Revelation, where he says that the letter that Jude wrote is written to those called, beloved, and kept. In Christ Jesus. The reason why we persevere is because he is keeping us. God is a keeping God. Or maybe you recall Psalm 121. It's the psalm that says, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. But listen to the next verse. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Verse 5, the Lord 
is your keeper. He's trustworthy. He's strong. He's secure. He keeps his people. Keeps them to the end. Does not let them go. Like I said last week, he holds them tight in his hand and nothing can snatch them out of his hand. There is security in Christ and those secure in Christ persevere in Christ. If you've washed your sins in the blood of the lamb, they will stay washed. And when you get to heaven, you will sing of the salvation that got you there. There are no songs in heaven about our stick to There are no songs in heaven about our work ethic. There are no songs in heaven about our ability to pick ourselves up and just not quit. There aren't. There are songs in heaven about the God who saves and keeps, who forgives sins and empowers us to persevere. The citizens of heaven can be identified as those who cling to Christ. They are secure. Their sins have been forgiven. They are washed in the blood of the Lamb. But I must point out that that is easy to understand in heaven because they're there, right? Understanding perseverance once you've persevered, is a little bit easier to understand. Understanding perseverance while you're still trying to persevere is a little more challenging, right? That's when we always bring up, yeah, but what about this? You don't know what I'm going through. You don't know how hard this is. And you don't know how many times I've been done wrong or let down. You don't know how much doubt I'm struggling with and so forth. That's why it's so important to see that they're coming through the great tribulation is linked to they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Because you don't wash your robes and make them white in the blood of the lamb when you get to heaven. You wash yourself in the blood of the lamb when you believe now. And if you would believe here today that you're not good enough to get to heaven, being a good person is not one of the identifiers here Being here today is not one of the identifiers here, but having washed in the blood of the Lamb is. And the Bible says that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. They will escape the judgment. They will pass from death to life. They will be adopted into the family of God by trusting in Christ. And we can do that now. And in that great song, by Augustus' top lady, called a debtor to mercy alone, we hear this. If you've never heard this line before, this ought to grip you. It says, more happy, but not more secure, the glorified spirits in heaven. 
You ever heard that line? More happy in heaven, yes. These that we read about in Revelation 7 are happier than us. They're not still in this world battling the flesh. They may be happier than us. They're there. But they're not more secure than us because our security is in the blood of Christ, risen from the grave, crucified on the cross for our sins. And by faith, we get his victory. The whole verse goes like this. Again, this is Augustus Toplady writing in a song called A Debtor to Mercy Alone. My name from the palms of his hands, eternity will not erase. Impressed on his heart, it remains in marks of indelible grace. Yes, I to the end, yes, I to the end shall endure, as sure as the earnest is given, more happy but not more secure, the glorified spirits in heaven. Does that exalt Jesus or does that exalt Jesus? That those here today in South Louisville clinging to Christ alone as our Savior are equally secure as those around the throne right now. What a thought. They may be happier because they've already come through the great tribulation because they have finished the race. They are with God, but they are not more secure because the only security that there is in this life or that life, in heaven or hell, the only security is in the salvation of the Lord Jesus Christ. The goal is to persevere in Christ. The goal is to make it to heaven because our identity is in Christ. Just a few weeks ago, we had the Kentucky Derby, and leading up to that, we had the Kentucky Derby Festival, and with that, we have all the, the races that we have here. You've got the, you've got the 10-miler, you've got the mini-marathon, you've got the full marathon, and I, I didn't even know it, but we have multiple people in our church this year, a handful, run the full marathon. At first, I started thinking, well, why didn't they invite me? And then right away, I remembered why they didn't invite me. I could not have run the full marathon with them. But a couple years ago, uh, Val asked me to try to do the mini marathon with her. The mini is really mini. It's only 13 miles. And so we signed up for it and had a good friend here in the church that kind of pushed me toward it and... Val and I did it. I don't remember what year that was, just a couple years ago, but we ran the mini marathon. And when you get finished with it, you start talking to people about doing it, there's a question that they always ask. What was your time? What was your time? What was your time? And I'm going to be totally honest. From training, from start to finish, to the race, to the beginning, at the end or whatever, I never once thought about my time. I had one goal for that mini marathon. Finish, get there, make it to the end without walking. Run the entire thing. And we did. We ran it all, all 13 miles. That's what the Christian life is like. And that's what this life is like. Your time how long you're a believer or how short you're a believer, your speed or pace, 
how good of a believer you are. Those are not the characteristics of those that we see in heaven. The characteristic that we see of those in heaven is that they made it to heaven, trusting in Christ, persevering in him, washed in the blood of the lamb, coming through, coming out of the great tribulation. May you be aware that this life is brief and passing us by, but this life is also heavy and there's a lot to deal with and think through as we all know. May you cling to Jesus as you know he is clinging to you. May you persevere in Christ, washed in the blood of the Lamb, because your God is keeping you. The first identifier we see of the citizens of heaven is their perseverance in Christ. The second identifier we see of the citizens of heaven is that they are sheltered by his presence. Verse 15 says, Therefore, They are before the throne of God. They serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. You know what a shelter is, right? It's an umbrella on a rainy day. It's a pavilion to get you out of the sun or the storm. It's a covering. It's a roof over your head. That's what a Shelter is. And in heaven, you're sheltered. You're sheltered. You're sheltered by him. Think about that. You're sheltered by him. Well, wait a second. I I thought heaven didn't have any bad things there. And so I don't really need a shelter. True. But the only way to get to heaven where there's no bad things is through him. And so the very means of getting to heaven become the very means of keeping you in heaven, become the very means of protecting you from all that is outside of heaven. Once again, like the throne in the center of heaven, the shelter is him, his presence. He hasn't built a shelter. He doesn't tell us that you go there and he'll put you in this location to shelter you from things. He is the shelter. But notice here that this is very much so in strong contrast to the judgments that we see in chapter 6. Turn back to chapter 6. At the great judgment, at the return of Christ in chapter 6, look what we start reading in verse 15. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? 
There are people in the judgment searching for shelter, running to shelter, hoping that a mountain will shelter them or a cave will shelter them. There are people looking for shelter, and yet the Bible has told us all along, Old Testament, New Testament, beginning to end, I just read to you from Psalm 121, that God is the shelter. The only reason why you would foolishly look for shelter outside of God is because you do not trust in him. He loves you. He is the shelter. The next time that you are afraid or the next time you are guilty in your sins or the next time that you're thinking, I'm looking for some security somewhere, whether it's a blanket, whether it's a friend, whether it's um, a food, whatever it is that comforts you, be reminded that God is my shelter. And a characteristic of heaven is he's all the shelter that we need. It's his presence that shelters us. What a contrast this is from chapter 6 to chapter 7. While they are running in search of shelter, fearful, knowing he's the shelter. Those in heaven will be sheltered by his presence when he's to be the shelter. Along these lines of him sheltering, they are sheltered by his presence, we also get this phrase in verse 15. They serve him day and night in his temple. They serve him day and night in his temple. A characteristic or an identifier of the citizens of heaven is that they serve God. They like to serve God. They are happy serving God. They don't tire of serving God. They don't wear out. They don't punch a clock. They don't say it's not my job. They happily serve God. They'll do it in the daytime. They'll do it in the nighttime. They'll do it all the time. They serve God. He is such a savior to them. He is such a God to them. He is such a uh, shelter to them that they are glad to serve him. We can't miss this. That's what it says there. There is so much talk in our day, in our culture, that heaven must just be the best thing that we can think of. Many of you all will remember several sermons ago that I talked about that. That we so often just think of heaven as this life just a few notches up. If you love to play baseball, then heaven's just going to be a lot of baseball. And if you love pizza, then heaven's going to be a lot of pizza. And if you love dogs, then heaven's going to be a great time with dogs. And we hear that all the time. I hear that at nearly every funeral I go to. We just want heaven to be a little bit better than here. And it may be, and I hope that it is, have all those good things that you want. But we have a lot of characteristics of what heaven's actually like. And one of the characteristics of heaven is that you serve God. That sounds awesome to people that like to serve God. And that sounds, I'll just be honest, that sounds awful and absolutely contradictory to people that don't. What if we started saying, oh man, heaven's going to be great, you're going to love it there. You serve God all day long, night and day, that's what you do. You serve him all day long. There'll be a lot of people wanting heaven, thinking they're going to heaven, going. Uh, that's, that's not what I thought of. But notice that they do. This Wednesday, past Wednesday, four days ago, showed up here at church at 10 o'clock for men's Bible study. And Mr. T- Mr. Terry Burton was already here making coffee for men's Bible study. 
we got out of Bible study, he was eating a Dairy Queen sandwich so that he could hurry up and work in the Dare to Care food pantry. It was super hot on Wednesday. We stayed outside from 1 o'clock to 4 o'clock in the sun, passing out food. As soon as that got done, soaking wet with sweat, he pulled out our grill and grilled the dinner for every single one of us that had dinner here Wednesday night. I don't know what time he left or what time he quit. But I know that he was serving all day long. Some people like to serve. The Bible doesn't say that you like to serve. See, there's a tendency here for you to go, oh, well, that's me too. I would too. I'd rather work than play. Hey, our, our country's full of people like that. Our country's built on people like that that will work like a dog. Their, their biggest characteristic is the strength of their back. They can go from sun up to sun down. I was raised by two people like that. My mom and dad can work, work, work. That's what they do. That's all they've ever known. And serving is such an awesome characteristic in our society. Working is such an awesome characteristic in our society. But I don't want you to be confused that it's just serving. The Bible says here, serving God. And so this becomes an issue in Terry's heart and life. And we've talked about this many times. If he knows that that working and that serving gets him nowhere with God, God's not keeping a scorecard of how good of a Christian he is, but rather he says, God has served me so much, all I can do is serve him back. I'm trusting in Christ. May God be glorified in my heart. Then God is served through that. As he was doing all that serving, Miss Becky McBroom was here, grinding away in the kitchen, slicing up tomatoes, pulling apart stuff, making up uh, pasta salad and whatever else we had that night, working so hard to make sure every one of us can eat. But you know what I got on Thursday morning? I got a message from People that were here on Wednesday night for the very first time. They had never, well, the lady especially, had never, ever been to our church. Never. And I got a message that said, hey, I don't know the name of that lady that was running the kitchen last night. But she was so nice to us. Made us feel welcome talked with us, showed us around, showed us how to get some ice cream. She served us so well, and it just totally, we were nervous to be there, first time ever. And I was sitting there thinking, man, all she does is work in the kitchen, and yet we have guests saying she was so great to us. Same issue. I'm not automatically saying that hard work and work ethic is for the glory of God. It's got to be serving God. But just like Terry knows, Becky knows too. This is a heart issue. We don't hang our hat on our service. We hang our hat on our heart and faith in Christ in our service. That he has served us so much that we can serve him back. The Bible says that an identifier of those in heaven is that they serve him day and night. May you now, by faith, learn to serve God. May you learn to serve God. Whether it's babies that you're taking care of, whether it's a wife that needs your service, whether it's 
unruly children that need extra attention, whether it's a neighbor that's difficult, whether it's bad attitudes in the workplace. We could go on and on with opportunities to serve, but people in heaven love serving God, and an identifier is that, and so we must now learn to serve God. This second point is sheltered by his presence, but in that we have serving him day and night. But it says a few things here. Look at verse 16. They will hunger no more, thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. And if you jump down to the very end, verse 17, you've got, and God will wipe away every tears from their eyes. These are all just examples of the hardships of this life. Hunger. World hunger tells us right now that nearly a billion people are battling hunger, starvation. Nearly a billion people in the world. Almost 10% of our world does not have food. And I know often your mind goes to these third world countries where there's just so many needs. But I want you to know that this past Wednesday, we had a record day. The most households First Baptist Fairdale has ever served, not counting the people we fed at Wednesday night dinner, we had 300 households come through our Dare to Care food pantry. Now, granted, we may say some of them don't need it, but some do. One of the issues of this world that is so incredibly not heaven is struggle and adversity and hardship. Hunger plagues our world. And it may be parents' faults, but the world is full of kids that are hungry. You may be familiar with many, many kids that hate school lunch. You may be familiar with many, many kids that even if their parent made them eat a school lunch, they would not even eat a school lunch. But I would... Love for you to know that there are kids that cannot wait to get off of that bus because they have not eaten since the last time they were at school. And we could talk all day long about whether that's good or bad or it's the parents' fault or whatever. I'm just saying that people are hungry in this world and heaven says nobody will be hungry there and they're not going to be thirsty there. And I know we've got air conditioner I have people tell me almost every Sunday during the summer that it's too cold in here. But one of the plagues of this life is that the sun is overbearing. There's no relief. There's no shelter. There's nowhere to go. You can only sit under a shade tree for so long. And the sun is absolutely beating down on so much of our world. And this will not be the case in heaven. You won't suffer that way anymore. There are people sheltered from hunger and sheltered from thirst and sheltered from the sun and even from tears. And this week was a heavy week. I'll be honest, I did a lot of crying this week. I went through a fifth grade promotion as our fifth grader has finished elementary school. And I went to an eighth grade promotion as our eighth grader has finished middle school. Come August, I'll have a high schooler, middle schoolers, and elementary schoolers. 
And I couldn't help but just sit there and tear up and be emotional. I used to have babies. I used to have little kids. Now they're growing up. And it's a lot to think about. It's a lot to process. I sit there crying. If somebody becomes an adult at age 18, if they move out of the house at age 18 or they go off to college or whatever, then that means literally the clock is ticking on my oldest. Not even under my roof anymore. It's not too far away. And that overcame me with tears. Have I been a good dad? Have I been a good enough dad? Have I been a godly dad? Does he feel loved by me? Does he know that I'll be his guy, his man, his best friend, that I'll always be there for him? Does he believe what I say? Does he trust me? Tears came from these thoughts. And yet even with that, wouldn't we say those are good tears, happy tears? And this world is filled with all types of sad tears. As we heard again this week of another school shooting, and you've seen the pictures of those. We need shelter. And hopefully you've lived long enough to know this world doesn't provide it. This world does not provide all the shelter that you need. In every world hunger report, it tells us there's enough food in the world. We just don't have good enough ways to get it to all the people that need it. We need shelter, but we don't always have it. A characteristic of heaven is that he will shelter them with his presence. Lastly, number three, they persevere in Christ. They're sheltered by his presence, and they are guided by the shepherd. If you look at verse 17, it says, The lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water. Here is such a simple, beautiful description of heaven. It recalls to us that well-known psalm, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, I will not need, I will lack no good thing. He leads me beside still waters, he makes me lie down in green pastures, he restores my soul. God is a shepherd that leads and guides his people. He guides them to springs of living water, fullness and satisfaction and quenched thirst and quenched lives and treasure. But notice here that the shepherd is the lamb. What a thought. Verse 17 tells us that the lamb is the shepherd. That's beautiful. That's so beautiful. What do shepherds do? They lead lambs, right? What do shepherds do? They lead lambs. But our shepherd is the lamb. 
Because as much as we would want life to be making good decisions and getting on the right path and sticking to the straight and narrow and just trying to do your best according to how you were raised or how the Bible teaches you or how to follow God or whatever, that's not it. If you want to be a sheep led by the shepherd, you must believe that the shepherd was a sheep or a lamb that died for you. You must trust in him. You must humble yourself and say, God, I can't do it on my own. I don't know the way. I don't know what's right. I can't save myself. I can't shelter myself. I can't finish the race. I can't persevere. I need you. Heaven has citizens, people that belong there. They are those that have persevered in Christ. They are those who are washed in the blood. They are those that are sheltered by him and love to serve him. They are those guided by him. They look to him for direction. They walk in his way. Their delight is in the law of the Lord, and on that law they meditate day and night. They don't look to the right or to the left. They seek first the kingdom of God. They set their mind on things above. They turn their eyes upon Jesus. They believe that the shepherd is a lamb that will guide them. In summary of chapter 7, Shriner says this. Praise God. There will be a countless multitude in the new creation. Salvation isn't limited to a few, but includes more than can be calculated. Enjoying the lavish greatness of God's grace. The fulcrum of history, the key to history, is the cross of Christ. Believers enter the new creation because the blood of the Lamb was shed for our sake. The stain of guilt is removed by his atoning sacrifice. Seeing the grace and beauty of this great salvation causes both saints and angels to swell with praise and joy. The sorrows and troubles of this present world will not last forever. The day is coming when the entire universe will be God's temple. And he will wipe away our tears. The lamb will be our shepherd, satisfying every need and filling us with unspeakable joy. The Bible does not want you to make it to the end and hope that heaven is yours. The Bible does not want you to hope that you're being the best person you can be and then hope that you will make it to heaven. The Bible wants you to believe that by trusting in Christ for the salvation of your soul, that you will be a member belonging citizen of heaven right now. May you trust in Christ. Father in heaven, thank you for Revelation 7 and these characteristics, these identifiers of the citizens of heaven. Father, I pray that we would be those that like Paul wrote in Philippians 3, we would not look to this world as our home and the ways of it as what we're like. But rather, we have a Savior, a Lamb who died for us, a Shepherd that guides us. Oh, Father, may our identity be like those of heaven. Thank you 
for this vision that John saw. Father, they sang, salvation belongs to our God. And Father, here, may we cry that out as well. You are our Savior. God, we ask your blessing on our church now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.